Oaths Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. friends and listeners and welcome to episode 2 of the Thoth Hermes podcast and it's season 10. Yes, season 10, how amazing and I was very happy to see that last week when we launched this new season after a nine months break, you were immediately back. I had very, very nice downloading figures. People seemed to like what we did and of course, that makes you, Rudolf, that's me, happy. Um, so I hope you will also like what we do here today, something completely different. Today, my guest is Marco Visconti. Marco, who has also recently published a book on Alistair Crowley and the kind of kind of um, course of Thelema, I would think his book is. But we will talk about that in detail in the second half of our interview after having presented himself and well, many of you know Marco for his courageous, outspeaking way he is, and um, which is also not always easy for him, has also created some upheaval in the occult world, but I think that Marco was absolutely doing the right thing. Anyway, that's for later. For the moment, I'm glad that you're back. I wish uh, you welcome, and I hope that you all know already the website. If not, I give you the website, thoughthermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com, because there, not only you will find, like in most of the podcast outlets, all of our 150-ish episodes that we have published here so far, a lot of gems, a lot of things you can discover. You can go to see the show notes there, also very important because with every episode, of course, there are links and informations and you should have a look there because it always, when you have an interest in the topic, brings you further and isn't occultism something that you always have to discover by yourself, learn, go further and discover new things. That's what we are here for, aren't we? Right. And while you're there, you can always leave me some feedback, some message. There is, of course, the usual feedback page where you can enter your text, but there's also a voicemail you can use. Uh, send me some voice message for free, of course, on that tab on the right side of the screen on all pages of Thoth Hermes. And... Well, it would also be nice if you clicked on that Patreon button, Patreon or donation button, whichever you prefer. Um, with Patreon, you are with us for about from anything starting at one dollar per episode. And I would be very grateful if some of you would uh, subscribe there. I really want to keep this here um, completely free of publicity. But um, it's only possible if some more of you over the next few weeks will join and become patrons. So please do that because things uh, have become more expensive. Also, podcasting has become more expensive. I know everybody suffers from that, but we need your support. Thank you for that. Um, 
We are, of course, available on all the major outlets and you have also now the possibility to subscribe on Podurama, uh, new stuff which I uh, have also lately taken on here because I think it's an excellent way of if you're interested in a topic and you like one podcast and you listen to it there, then you will be put further to other podcasts with similar content, with the same interests. So an extremely useful tool for those of you who are eager podcast listeners in general. So Podurama it is, and you find also the link on the webpage. I told you last time that I will be doing uh, some series, kind of series, in the field of sound and music in regards to occultism. So um, one or two little feedbacks I, I got already, but if you are personally interested in that subject and have something to deliver, so music that you composed in that context maybe, or um, maybe have written some text on that topic or made experiences that you would like to relate, um, please do so. Um, I will collect them in a bit of a different way than I usually do with this podcast because I want to make this some special thing on the podcast in this season and maybe even beyond. So it would be nice if you came up with something. And of course, as before, if it's not something that goes into that field, but if it's music that you have produced that you would like to share with our listeners and where you own the rights, of course, um, yes, do please contact me and let's share that music together here on the Pod Hermes, Pod Hermes, yes, Thoth Hermes podcast. Here we go. Right, guys. Um, so talking about music, of course, we're going to play some music now here for you also on this show. And Marco Visconti, who himself is a musician, he also suggested three pieces to me which we will play. Now the first we will play is not uh, played by himself. We also will have that later on in the show. But um, we have the first piece, which is called Drift, uh, by a group from LA, which is called Three T's. It's spelled the figure three and then T's. Um, and um, you will, of course, find the link and everything on the web page, on, on the show notes of, of the website. Um, but I would like to read to you what Marco himself had to say about that music, because I think it's the most genuine thing I can say about the music you're going to hear. So 3Ts is a group from LA, which started in 2013, and today are one of the most famous industrial metal acts worldwide. The singer and mastermind Alexis Minkola is a very close friend to Marco and he says we bonded over our interest for esotericism. So you see, that's really something that's very much around in the field of music. So and in fact, a lot of the themes and imagery of Three T's is steeped in occultism. Drift, which is the piece we're going to hear right now, is However, again, very a different piece from their usual fare and the themes of dissolution with the world are very topical, as Marco says, with my own feeling of disillusionment with O-culture. So yes, that's going to be something we're going to talk about. And many people who read Marco's posts and talk to him know that. Um, right, well, let's now go right away and listen to some music by... 3T's Drift. 
Enjoy.
Drift by Three Teeth. A piece of music also suggested by today's guest, Marco Visconti, and uh, the Alastair Crowley Manual is the book that he published a few months ago and which is kind of the reason why finally Marco is on this podcast. Actually, I had, had wanted him to come on this podcast for quite some time and uh, then this book appeared and I wanted to do it and then I did take took my break and well you know how it comes and finally we have him here today we should say do what I will she'll be the whole of the law because Salima of course with that book title you can imagine is the subject of that book um, he in the introduction says something very crucial he begins that book with by saying I will start by sharing a secret with you I really don't like writing about magic. Well, what a thing to say to start a book. But he states very clearly why he uh, is very much against this armchair magicians to speak, speaks about those who read about magic but never practice it. But And then he says, well, referring to that famous novel, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clarke, I am a Jonathan Strange much more than I am a Mr. Norrell the one who dares to actually use rituals instead of simply philosophizing about them ad infinitum. I hope you will be too by the end of this book. Right, you should be. Um, well, maybe some of you are already seasoned practitioners. I will say I won't really need that. Probably true, but um, it's not for beginners only. It's really a book that especially the further you go, the more in-depth it goes, and it's really interesting. Um, I'm not, as most people here know, not a Thelemite myself, but um, I have learned also a lot from that book, and it's really, it's really, really highly interesting and agreeable to read. And uh, the Alistair Crowley manual, of course, we will also have it on the show notes so that you can find it more easily. Um, well, Marco, and you will speak about that in our first part of the interview, is also somebody who is very outspoken, as I said already in the intro, somebody who dares also criticize and, as he says himself, is sometimes a bit unhappy about things going on in the occult world, especially things that happened some years ago. He, when it was about abuse, etc., and he was very outspoken about that. And, well, after we did that interview, a few days after the interview, because I recorded that interview about 10, 15 days before it is now being published, as always, uh, something happened. That woman who he helped um, support or he supported and uh, uh, made a big media thing about the fact that she had related that she had been sexually abused in within um, the limbic order, etc. Um, she made a statement that she had lied. Uh, whatever. Um, I want to cite uh, another very well-known female occultist who said, just because this woman is a liar, whether it was lies then or now or both doesn't matter, she is a liar. Yes, that's true. And whether it's that the case, um, we shouldn't give her too much bandwidth anymore. People have been terribly nasty to Marco already five years ago. Now they have been nasty to him again. And this is a shame uh, because he was helping people who are weak. He tried to support people who he thought had been abused. 
And it's not because somebody is lying that it is not a matter which is crucial and that this should not happen in this world, that women or anybody would be sexually abused within occultist order or anywhere else, by the way. Okay, so full stop. We won't go any further into that, but um, Marco is a great guy and we should all be behind him, whether we are occultists, non-occultists, thelemites, non-thelemites, it's just a matter of honor and respect of the human being. Right, so um, let's go to the interview now. Let's go to the interview and let's speak about the important matters, who Marco is, what he does, why he does it, and what he had to say in his book. Let's join Marco Visconti. Here comes the interview. And today it's a real great pleasure to have, well, I must say finally, because we have been planning to do this for some time. And then, well, my break here at the podcast came in between. And finally, I have Marco Visconti here in front of the microphones of Thoth Herbie's podcast. Marco, it's great to have you. Well, it's, it's amazing to be here, right? Uh, as you said, like we planned it for quite a while and mm. you know like i learned that things happen when they they need to happen and today's the day <laughs> so Absolutely. great to be here, here we are here we are actually we both think uh, that we even met in person many years ago because at some obscure times when i visit london almost once a month and marco was then working at watkins i believe watkins it is no, it was right? treadwells it was uh, treadwells, treadwells. So, sorry sorry yeah. well anyway i visited all those bookshops in in in, in London when I was there and well we might have talked to each other in not knowing that we would do yeah, it's day. very likely right like, <laughs> I mean, like if you were doing the, the London occult bookstore tour uh, between 2014 2018 I was at Treadwell's right so, so I, I'm sure we met there but anyway now we are here and um the occasion of our meeting is the occasion is that book that you published um, well uh, already now it is quite quite some months ago the Alice it's the been Crowley six Manuel. months it's six yeah. months recently right a few days ago actually uh, absolutely so it's about time we speak about that and we go into the detail into that book and and what what it was for you why you did it etc etc but before that marco we marco we would like to hear from you a bit about yourself and um especially of course the part that what brought you to be interested in the occult in the magic the magical world into crowley in particular but where did it all start for you what was your initial flame that brought you into that world so, you know, I, uh, I, uh, I'm originally from Rome, Italy, and mm. I grew up in a big house with a lot of books and with very absent, you know, parents. <laughs> so I was most of the times on my own with these books. And I remember, you know, as from a very young age, I was a child really, getting really gravitating towards the books in the library of my dad and my mother that was about mythology. They had a lot of mythology, uh, okay. especially, and you know, like we, we, we are Italians in Rome. You would think you would have a lot of real Roman mythology or maybe Greek mythology, which is, you know, the, the roots of our culture. But in fact, there was a lot of Egyptian mythology. There was a lot of Celtic mythology. So that's, I really right. got into that a lot, right? More than Rome, uh, Roman or Greek mythology. 
And then I guess the next thing that, that contributed to my interest for the occult, let's call it the occult at first, was the fact that my mom um, was very much into it herself as a young woman. Like she, mm -hmm. uh, she used to do seances in the 70s in Rome. Uh, in the 70s, there was a huge seance movement uh, and she was... She was organizing them. She was doing them. And then, you know, when I was born in 1978, she said that she would never do it anymore, right? But she was always talking about it. And my dad was completely a total skeptic. And he was always saying, like, you know, like, I'm a skeptic, but your mother used to do things I cannot understand. So, you know, as a young boy, you get very, very curious about knowing all of these things. Of course. And then, you know, the next big, um, I would say maybe proto-initiation, if you want, into this world, happened in the summer of 1990. Uh, so it was like 33 years ago now. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that is like, I, at the time I was 12, so I was still very young. And um, I discovered Aleister Crowley by complete chance in the summer special of a comic book. In Italy, we have this comic book, it still goes on, called Martin Mister. And Martin Mister is a kind of an Indiana Jones, but for, you know, everything that's occult and everything that's mysterious. Um, and, and, you know, during the summer special, they had an extra little booklet that was talking about the most mysterious man in history. Okay. Uh, and, of course, you know, uh, Crowley was there. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, like, there was a huge chapter on Crowley, and it was, you know, as, as lurid and sensationalistic as you can imagine. But it was great because it was like, what the second? Like, I don't know, maybe it was, you know, the a few years later I would get into goth music, metal music. So possibly I was just starting to percolate that sort of uh, iconoclastism. Okay, it's not even a word, but, you know, going against the grain. And, and Crowley just like ticked all the boxes, right? I was like, okay, this guy's cool. And I want to know more mm -hmm. about it. And so I went out, I looked for whatever books I could find. Crowley. So remember, it's 1990 in Italy. There's really nothing about it. Sure. But, you know, but I could find um, Kenneth Grant's book and Magic Interim Practice, which was um, a reprint of um, the Simons, Simons and Grant edition, in fact, of 1972, translated in Italian by Astrolabio, which is... I was going uh, to ask as well, it was in Italian. You could find those books uh, in Italian at the time. I could only find Magic... Uh, yeah, I could find Magic Interim Practice in Italian with a caveat. Uh, mm -hmm. That translation was so bad because clearly the <laughs> translator did not understand the bits and pieces of it that chunks were missing. So, you know, you, you, again, like imagine like I'm, I'm 12, I'm trying to read Magic Interim Practice. I don't understand anything about it. And the translation is also bad. <laughs> like, you know, so it's like, I, I don't know. But I could find the first two books by Kenneth Grant in Italian. They, were, they had been translated. So you've got like The Magical Revival and Aleister Crowley and The Hidden God. They were translated. They were, they were good translations. And okay. so, and you know, like Grant was, was like this very much... Um, like an incredible um, raconteur, if you want, somebody who can really weave stories, and that really hooked me, right? Um, and that, and the rest kind of is history, because then I spent, you know, my my teenage years trying to figure out everything I could about Crowley, about Ken Grant. Uh, Crowley became my 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 main interest. Um, I was an early adopter of the internet, so I was on BBC uh, networks, IRC net, you know, things, things that right now right. really look like the, the prehistory of, of the internet. <laughs> Everything. So for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, 
Imagine like text based. Imagine chat, and that's all how Absolutely. you <laughs> remember all AOL groups and stuff. Like exactly. That. <laughs> I, you know, Usenet, Usenet Magic, yeah. and things. And I was all on all of them. I was a very like mm-hmm. I, said, I was an early adopter, and I started getting so I started getting a little bit more information, and then. By the end, by the by the time it's like the nineties start to you know wear off, uh, and I am like I finally I'm of age I'm twenty and I get in touch with a group in Italy that turns out to be um, a very obscure lineage of the AA in fact, and so I got initiated into the into the AA, became an aspirant of the AA, and uh, um, a few year few months later really I have my first um, encounter with the OTO in Italy. And I realized that it wasn't for me. Like I, I didn't gel with the people. They were very, very extreme for the time. You know, they, mm-hmm. they were a very small and close knit group that really wanted to portray the image of the demon Crowley. So very much into drugs, very much into mm-hmm. uh, excess. And at the time, I was—I mean, I, I was very much of a. Uh, of a good boy that would change in my twenties, but at, at, you know, but at the time it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't for me. Like I had no tattoos, no beer stings, no nothing. So, um, like I said, I, I was, I was getting into goth and metal and that really mm. became my life. In fact, as a musician in, in the two thousands and all, but right. you know, like, I, so I, I realized that the audio wouldn't do for me. Uh, and so I remain with my group, with my A group, I proceed my training there and a uh, few fast forward a few years. I have uh, experimented with various online groups. Dragon Rouge was one. <laughs> Fun story there, like in the sense that it was not. Oh, really? The, the Dragon Rouge, the, 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 uh, from Sweden? Yeah, yeah. Basically, I got in touch with them in 1999. Uh, and I was one of the few, the first Italian members. Uh, right. I, was there, I was there to, you know, in the group, the group that became Lodge Sotis in Napoli. Mm-hmm. Uh, Naples, you know, met first in my apartment in Rome. Oh, and then right. when they went on to create Lodge Sotis, I decided it wasn't for me because once again, uh, the, 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 the people were very much like very far right leaning. It wasn't for me. Um, I, uh, I just moved away. And, but, but, but at the same time, through that group, I end up meeting one person uh, called Roberto Migliusi. And with him, we created Something that still exists today, uh, Roberto kept, kept it going all these years, called Labyrinto Stellare, which translates to the stellar mm-hmm. maze, stellar labyrinth. And uh, Roberto was already uh, a major figure in Italy because he was the, the one who translated all of Austin Osman's pair in Italian. And oh, really? it, uh, he self-published it. And uh, Roberto was 10 years to 15 years older than me. So I was in my 20s. He was already uh, like late 30s, early 40s at the time. And... Um, uh, we got a little group together and we started experimenting with, you know, Sperian techniques. We started experimenting with the Amokos from Dadaji and, uh, you know, Mike McGee. Uh, we started experimenting with a lot of Kenneth Grant, you know, we, I am, and then, you know, the main thing is that we started experimenting and working with, um, all the works from all the practices from Michael Bertieu. And I ended up translating like you okay. do. You know, Lucky Udo is the first chapter of the Wudon Gnostic Workbook. Yeah. Uh, and I translated it in Italian and we published it. And, uh, you know, from that point, and, you know, we also translated some various things from Kenneth Grant in Italian. And, you know, from that point onward, I started working with Michael Bertio directly. We went to visit him in, in Chicago. 
in what's that November or October November 2004 and mm-hmm. I spent a very very interesting two weeks with him um in the sense that when I look back at that experience uh it was really like going into wonderland Michael Bertio's uh, flat is an in, it's almost like a museum of magic and right. it's 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 basically it's at the time I don't know if it still works there I haven't seen him in many years but at the time I was living on this like penthouse 33rd floor or 30th floor of you know this skyscraper overseeing Lake Michigan so you would see like this massive lake which really looks like a sea from that mm-hmm. vantage point mm-hmm. and you are inside a strange occult uh <laughs> you know big flat in fact that, that looks like a magical uh magical world mm-hmm. so that's a little bit of my story um and then you know I really I really went on to practice the system of Michael Bertu in direct, um, in, in, in direct um, lineage with him, okay? And, uh, but at the same time, I was also very busy with what was my musical career, uh, which took off pretty much around those years. Uh, mm-hmm. my, own, my band was called XP8, and then I started working. And we, we, we were making music. It was imagine something like, I like to describe it, uh, the Prodigy meets the Depeche Mode. So a little bit of synth pop, <laughs> but a little bit of brave music as well, right? And, uh, you know, th- that scene used to be very, very big in the 2000s, and then it died down in the 2010s. Um, but at the time, you know, there, w- there was this massive, massive tours you could do, massive festivals, especially in Germany. Uh, all of that still exists, but... It's it's much smaller now. What way were you still based in Rome at the time and and going out from there or? You know, I was uh, I had my house in Rome, but the reality there is that between let me think, 2002 and 2015, I kind of lived on tour, right? In the sense, I had first I had like my base in Rome, and then from 2013 onwards, 10 years ago, I had my base in London here mm-hmm. in the UK. But I was pretty much like nine to 10 months out touring right, uh, right. from time to time, you know, back in the 2000s when the, that scene was thriving, um, I was out like on tour, like constantly. And then maybe it would become like weekend tours, long weekend tours. So yeah, I would, you know, I would come back home for two days and then jump on a plane again and go somewhere. I used to go a lot, you know, in the Netherlands, Germany, uh, Scandinavia, the UK mm-hmm. and all over the US. And then, you know, we did, we did, we did a, a strange place. Like we spent, um, the summer of 2006, we went to do a tour in Russia where I almost got killed twice on the same day. <laughs> it was an interesting experience. But yeah, like, uh, that's, that's, you know, that, that became my focus. And so magic and initiation and the call took a little bit of a step backwards. And then, um, around 10 years ago, uh, a, when I realized that my, that that scene was dying down, that career was finishing, I had to reinvent myself. That's when I, let's say, rekindled my day-to-day interest in the occult. And at the point, uh, I was also at a strange juncture in my life because a series of personal things happened. You know, my, mm-hmm. my mom died of sudden. My father was very ill for a year and a half. I had to take care of him. I'm the only son, so I had to take care of him. No one else could. And, you know, after that all subsized, uh, I realized, you know, that career was over. Uh, and so maybe I could give a go to go back into magic full time pretty much. And yeah. that's when I, that's when I, you know, I joined the OTO because that's a group of very close friends who were a member of Camel Lodge in Rome. And they were telling me, oh, you know, like it's all different now. The people you met in the nineties, they're mostly gone. 
they were. In fact, one was dead as well. <laughs> like the, the, the master of the lodge eventually died. Um, and uh, and so it's like, you know, it's different now. And, you know, at the time there was one was a, good, a woman that I had, you know, affairs on and on for 10 years. So it was very, a good confidant. Let's put it like that. The other was one of my best friends and they became a couple. So it was like, they're, my, they're great, good friends. If, if they're inviting me, I'm going to trust them. Yeah. And... I wish I didn't <laughs> because, because, you know, the, when I, when I get in, I decide to get involved into something, I go into it, you know, 200%. And, um, and it, the reality that at the time I also kind of needed it because like my, the life I knew, the life I, I lived up until that moment, moment, my point was finishing, was, was over. I had to deal with all this, the, the grief of, you know, my, my mother passing and my father almost passing. Um, and so the idea of joining a group that was very much, it was sold to me as a family. Um, it was very appealing and, uh, you know, I did join, I went through, uh, through all the degrees of the Manover triad, finished the Manover triad. And when I moved to London, in fact, I joined Ameth Lodge here in London and I quickly became the treasurer of the lodge. And so I was very much involved into the planning of all the activities, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was also the, the person having to take care of the, of the money side of things. So having to chase How, how many people pain. were in that lodge at the time, approximately? Just how big was no, it? No, I, I can tell you exactly the number because I was like, I have to chase <laughs> them for payment. <laughs> so, Ameth Lodge between 2013 and 2018, when I resigned, had... When I, when I joined, it was around 70 people on the books. And when I left, it was nine, over 90 people on the books. Okay. Mm-hmm. Remember that I say on the books because you, you would only get 20 people tops to show up at every event. And we used to have events pretty much every weekend. Okay. Mm-hmm. We used to have maybe initiation weekend and then you would have a Gnostic mass weekend. And maybe you would have like a, another weekend where you would, people, mostly me and a couple of others, would run magic classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, honestly, you would get, you would never see the 90 people of the lodge. Never. Like it was, I, I never see them all together. Right. Because the reality there is that something that became painfully obvious to me, uh, during my tenure as a, a, you know, um, a lodge officer is that a lot of people joined the ODO. They realize it's not what they wanted from it. Part of it is expectations that are not well-managed. Part of it is the audio doesn't do much uh, and it's, it doesn't offer much. And mm-hmm. so people just drift away. Uh, either you, you were like you, people like me that said, no, no, I'm going to make this work. And, you know, I'm going to try to, uh, to attract more people, try to get, you know, all the initiation done as good as possible, try to get, you know, all the Gnostic masses done as, as good as possible, which to be fair, the Gnostic masses done at um, Ameth Lodge was very beautiful. And no matter which mass team, they were always very beautiful. Uh, but the reality there is that most people don't didn't have the uh, the patience to to realize that you know you, you know what, what, what do I mean? I, I joined the OTL. I was expecting this big, famous uh, working orders. I was expecting you know, marbled halls. I was expecting uh, everything you know working. And in fact, it's something in London, one of the biggest lodges in the world, if not the biggest by number of people. It's something run uh, in a community sh- community center. Uh, it's not owned. You always have to clean up afterwards. We had people walking in. 
it's <laughs> it's an interesting story. Like of, I will always remember one time during a moment in the Gnostic Mass where the priestess is naked on the altar, mm-hmm. uh, someone from the outside just walk in and <laughs> and looks at the situation. And I was like, uh, maybe you should leave now. And this person, like, you know, like pale, just close the doors and it goes, go. Where did there I is, get there? Exactly. <laughs> um, a few, few years, actually, actually in 2019, it was in 2018, I don't remember, a few years ago. And I wrote about this in my, on my, um, in my articles. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone did the same thing again and he wrote on Twitter and this long thread, it's very, it's very funny because the person was actually a right, a copywriter. So they, they wrote very in a funny way and okay. it was picked, it was picked up by the Daily Mail. It was picked up by the Guard, oh the Guardian. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was obscene, right? Everything that you don't want. Isn't it? Yeah. In, yeah. Exactly. Especially because, you know, in the audio there was, and there still is, uh, this big, um, this big emphasis on, you know, we protect the identity of our members. We protect the secrecy of our, absolutely not true. Yeah. In the sense that, you know, if you do that, then you do your, your meetings in a, in an owned house with not in a public center. That's the thing. But, but isn't that the situation now, which you might encounter in many of those orders, especially nowadays, because maybe they have also become smaller than they used to be 30 years ago, like Golden Dawn Orders or OTO or others of the same kind, even in some Masonic surroundings, you have that. Uh, and that um, you have 100 members and 20 show up and you are in community centers and it's all a bit improvised. Isn't that a reality that we all face in all? I think so. I think so. Yeah, it, It's definitely true for pretty much every group I know in this day. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm still I'm a Freemason. And the reason mm-hmm. why I'm still a Freemason, it's because, well, I'm very lucky with my lodge and I'm very lucky with the, the various groups, uh, Masonic um, orders that I'm a member of. Mm-hmm. In the sense that people are very nice. And it's, a, but also because here in London, you go to Freemason Soul and it's a beautiful experience. Like they still own the, the of beautiful course, yeah. building. The Freemason Soul okay. is particular. Yes, it, yeah, sure, it, sure. It, it, it's it's true. But it, it, and you know that adds a lot. I really I say this many times. You know, uh, I really think that if you want to do lodge magic, you need a lodge, right? If you need yeah. to, if you want to do the kind of magic that requires set and setting, you cannot do without set and yeah. setting. So, you so you should do something else. Maybe we didn't only meet at Treadwell, but maybe even at Freemasons Hall at some point. Because it could be. I, I, I even went always there when I was in London for, to visit lodges there. <laughs> it could well be. It could well be. And if you're ever back, let me know. And uh, yeah, I'll, sure. I'll invite you to, to Goliath. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it's funny you mentioned like the Golden Dawn. Because, you know, when I was working at Treadwells, one Golden Dawn group, which I generally don't know which one is which one was that, right? Mm-hmm. But there are many Golden Dawn groups. They used to meet sure. at Treadwells, and they used to meet like downstairs oh, really? at Treadwells. Yeah, doing <laughs> you know, it was like I was doing the Saturdays, and it was always funny because at the time Treadwells would be open to the public downstairs. Not anymore. Now downstairs is only for um, for events and for mm-hmm. uh, you know workshops. But at the time it was open to the public downstairs. It was so funny because I always had to stop people <laughs> to walk into the Golden Dawn ceremonies downstairs. All oh, right, I, I I remember going downstairs a lot. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yes, it was open. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, all the all the old books also were downstairs at Treadwells at the time. Yeah, the, the, yeah there was yeah. a lot of uh, you could just like wander everywhere. It's not anymore during uh, the pandemic. Christina did a fantastic job 
uh, Christina Ogliarinton is the yeah, owner sure. of Treadwell. She did a fantastic job at pretty much like refurbishing the entire shop. It looks oh, okay. incredible now. And yeah. downstairs is only for events, and it's right. beautiful. It's one right. of the best, right. one of the best places in London. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry, but I interrupted you with that story. So when you, so you were there at the OTO and it was what it was. Uh, yeah, point. it wasn't great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it came at some point also, it became a bit difficult for you. We don't have to talk lots about that, but I think it is all people who know you have certainly read about that, that at some point became a bit painful for you, right? Yeah, you can say that in the sense that, um, It all started in the summer of 2017, in fact. Uh, mm. more, everybody will be familiar with the what happened in Charlottesville in the U.S. in, mm. in August 2017. Actually, on the 17th of August. We're recording this on the 17th of August. That happened on the 17th of August 2017. Oh, uh, so, right. It's so, years free, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, interesting. Interesting synchronicity. Yeah. Uh, But what happened there is that, of course, they unite the rally, um, the right rally. And, mm -hmm. you know, the first, the fact that for the first time, the world wake, woke up to the realization that, look at that, neo-Nazis are still here. And they are, apparently they're here to stay. Um, what happened there is that one of the photos that made the rounds was this photo of the Proud Boys founder, Gavin McIntyre's. Mm -hmm. uh, with one guy in front of him, act, one of these proud boys acting as his bodyguard, and this guy had a huge 93 hoodie, okay? And that guy was Matthew Lyons, which was an OTO member, and mm -hmm. that's when the proverbial hit, hit the fan because he, the OTO realized that we had a Nazi problem in our midst. Uh, a lot of those Proud Boys, these were the Proud Boys before the Proud Boys became notorious. A lot of those people, you know, belonging to extreme right sex were lo and behold members of, reduced current members of the OTO. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of outrage online about that. Uh, and we all realized that the people at the top, the, lead, the worldwide leadership, you know, it's you know, not talking about your lodge master and not even talking about your, um, national, uh, you know, mm -hmm. leaders, but the people at the very top, Bill Breeze and most of them, Jim, James Wasserman, they were absolutely fine with it. In fact, James Wasserman became money, became pretty much like a herald or of, for these people saying, mm -hmm. you know, it's time for Telema to really embrace the old right because that's you know force and fire and we are going to uh, stamp the wretched and the weak uh, and we're going to run with it um mm -hmm. james wasserman went to even you know write on the new dawn magazine uh, a year later something like you know trump is the new crowley something i don't remember except it's it's absolutely insane mm. um you know eventually james wasserman would, would end up you know passing in 2020 But the problem is that for a good three years, he enabled this discourse online. He enabled this this kind of uh, behavior, and it became horrible. Really, uh, the the OTO split into between you know liberals or and far right people. And the reality there is that I'm really I'm in the middle in the sense that I I have my um, my issues with. Those ultra liberals, I, it's not me. Let's put it that yeah, yeah, But if yeah. I have to choose a side, I am on the side of the anti-fascist, and so mm -hmm. it, it got very painful. But it's not mm -hmm. all, it's not just that because just a year later, 
uh, I ended up uncovering a series of sexual abuse scandals here in the UK. In the UK, so, yeah. So, you know, like we have the, we have the, the problems in the US, the neo-Nazis, uh, people at the top, international, being apparently fine with that. And then in the UK, we have a series, a quite nasty situation of sex scandals connected especially to one person. And I... I really fought for that because I really believe into the inner justice of the audio. You know, there's all sorts of protocols. You know, you have something called the Grand Tribunal of the Sixth Degree. You have, you have to appeal to this Grand Tribunal and they send out inquisitors. It's exactly, a, it's it's as strange as it sounds, but that's how it works. Yeah, yeah and, and, words, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, uh, I really believe, you know, that they're, they're going to do it right because, you know, this person is a known uh, missing stare, as it's you know the yeah. term. You know the people. I don't want to hold you up on that word, but sorry, sorry to interrupt you. But um, inquisitor, in fact, it shows exactly that we we both were now trapped in that. It's the other way around. The word inquisitor, as it is used by common language through the church, is wrong. Yeah. Because in fact, as it is used in the OTO, inquisitor is just inquiring on somebody. Yeah, it's a sort of, sort of, sort of a detective, right? It, exactly. It. And it's funny because sometimes you a word gets its wrong meaning by its daily use, isn't that? That's yeah. a, a typically, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you, but it's an interesting no, no, good thing. Point. Because, good point. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Okay, and so, sorry. Like, can I, can I, like I decide to um, to trust in the order's justice, and the problem is that also because you know at, at the time I was still only a member of the Manovert. I did finish the Manovert. I was a perfect perfect initiate. That's the third, the, the grade. Uh, but you know I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, you know there were talks that I would be invited very soon to the next step, but it wasn't. Up, it didn't happen again. By the way, it never happened because I left before. Yes. Uh, but the point is that I was very good friends with people at six, seven degree, eight, nine degree as well. So uh, I was, I don't say that I was like, I, I, they, it's not like they were sharing secrets with me. Uh, some would eventually when they left as well. But, mm -hmm. you know, I was there when certain discussions were made, right? Well, mostly because, you know, at, up until that point, I was seen as, you know, possibly the next master of Ahmed Lodge, possibly, mm -hmm. you know, the the, 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 the the new generation of, you know, of leaders, if you want to. So, so silly as a term, but that's the idea, right? Mm -hmm. So I was absolutely 100% sure that these people that I consider friends would do something about it. And they didn't. And six right. months pass and nothing is happening to the point that, and you know, like, I'm not going to go into much detail. If people are curious, you know, they can go on my website. It's all written oh, yes, there. there. It's exactly. like, like very, very long detailed yeah, yeah. Uh, the article. Uh, it's almost 20,000 words of and not for that story. reason, but for in, in true, I always do that. Uh, your website will be linked on my show notes also, so Fantastic. people can easily find it. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, like just just to, to wrap this up, you know, like I I things things don't don't pan out as I hope. And this person, this this sexual abuser, uh, pretty much is given um, a pass in the sense that is uh, they let him resign mm. in, instead of kicking him out, and this is because. He, he had dirt on them. You know, he mm. had dirt on, on the leadership. Sure. And so, the, and I'm talking about the UK leadership here. Mm. And so the point is that since they, they wanted to make sure that this dirt didn't come out, he let him resign. 
And so they didn't have to kick him out and make, make it um, public, the fact that he, in fact, was a sexual abuser. Do you have a theory? Because what you're saying here is also something that to a larger or lesser extent, but something that is recurring in magical orders. You had the Golden Dawn when it started and a few years later, a certain Mr. Crowley was the reason actually for the first breakup already after, after a few years. Many more breakups happened later on. You have that in the OTO. You had the big row in the US uh, with, with the Caliphate, right? Uh, with the OTO. But Almost every order, even in masonry, everywhere you have that where esotericism, occultism is worked deeply. And mm -hmm. do you personally have a theory uh, why this happens? You would, of course, expect exactly the contrary because you would expect people to be more um, developed. Let's, well, maybe it's that's the wrong term, but you, you see what I mean, right? But Absolutely. why does it happens so often in those orders that those nasty rows and terrible things happen. I think that there is there are two problems there. Problem number one is that any hierarchical organization will breed abuse of some sort, will breed nepotism, will breed, you know, some people hoarding the power and some people being abused, right? I really realized that one of the big problems is hierarchic, hierarchical systems, okay? Especially this kind of hierarchical systems like the OTO that are completely autocratic. The OTO is not a democracy. It's not meant to be a democracy. It's an autocracy. The people at the top have absolute power, right? And so they... But can, can uh, uh, occult order, can an initiatic order be democratic? Uh, a good point. In the, the thing is that maybe not, right? Uh, but the, the counterpoint is that if you look again at the, how the OTO was supposed to be, um, you know, if you look at Libra 194, uh, mm. Libra 101, the people at the top are supposed to be the sort of philosopher kings, right? People that excel at philosophy and excel at athletics as well, right? And people, people that are, as you say, enlightened, that's almost never the case. People that get promoted are the friends of the leaders. And mm -hmm. that's how it works. So, you know, one of the big, of the big um, ideas behind how esoteric orders should work falls. Because, you know, instead of promoting the, the enlightened, instead of promoting those that maybe do the work, they only promote the friends, the friends of the leader. And I mean, mm -hmm. this is exactly what's happened with the OTO. Uh, when I resigned, a group of nine degrees resigned as well, pretty much at the same time. And the nine degrees is the highest degree in the OTO. So people at the top, right, resigned as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's some of them uh, have been particularly vocal, if you know if you know where to look for it, yeah. in saying that that's always been the problem. You know, the mm -hmm. person that runs the OTO, Bill Breeze, is, is an autocrat, but it's also somebody that only cares about their friends and and those who that he can manipulate right as soon as you sh show some sort of like um uh, freedom of thought or independence you get asked or you you are forced out right and and that's as i said that is, this is the situation of most groups i would say said, yeah you still learn hmm? You know, in, in my experience, for instance, Freemasonry, regular Freemasonry, you know, UGLE Freemasonry, it's not like this because as a Freemason, you are 
not expected ever to climb the ranks, right? In the sense that, you know, as a Freemason, you will go into the chair of King Solomon, become the master of the lodge eventually, right? But you're ne- you're, it's not like you're expected to go f- past that. You, you're never expected to become grandmaster, okay? Some people will, uh, but it's very few. And usually it's a situation of, you know, having enough money to justify all that misery, right? Yeah. In the OTO, especially in Libra 194, it's explicit read because it's very telemic, right? The idea of like striving to be better, striving to go higher and higher. It's really sure. written in the, in the intimation towards the constitution that, you know, members of the Man of Earth should strive to the next, to the next triad and, and people in lovers should become hermits. That's never been the case in the OTO as it's been reformed by, uh, well, Grady McMurtry, yeah. but in reality, Bill Priest, James Wasserman and, and mm. all that. That crowd in the in the Caliphate OTO from the eighty five. Yeah, yeah, and and sir, would you also say I, I'm I'm sure you're right about that. Um, on top of that, would you also say that um, initiate no, not initiatic orders, occult orders, um, the OTO and others attract often also people who have certain psychological. <laughs> Um, problems, issues. let's name it yeah. like that. <laughs> I have no doubts about it. Uh, yeah. Yes. I think so the concentration general, is higher than in regular, regular population, right? 100%. One big problem we had in OTO is the fact that we didn't know how to deal with people with, you know, serious mental issues because there was never any sort of pastoral care uh, or mm-hmm. pastoral training was just not there, right? Yeah. Uh, people were just expected to just deal with it. And, mm. and the, the, the message was there, well, you know, like, you know, the, the, the problematic people will filter themselves out. And in fact, this is also what, uh, you know, in the years since I left, uh, if you speak with people in the OTO, they still think that I've been kicked out and I was a problematic person mm. because, you know, the story is that if somebody leaves the OTO, they are not good enough. It's never mm. about, right. Um, we, 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 ha- we don't have the tools to deal with people. We don't know how to deal with people, right? And it, it also, another big problem is that these open doors orders, right? These orders you can join by virtue of, you know, finding two sponsors, which in London was super simple. You would go to a pub, get two people to sign your paper, done. Mm-hmm. Um, you, there's never any bad thing. And, mm-hmm. and so you end up, you know, with a, with a group of people that maybe you have nothing in common. The only thing that should, you should have in common with, maybe, you know, the interest in golden dome magic, the interest in Freemason, the interest, the interesting in dilemma becomes almost like an obsession and, and a lot of interpersonal issues bubble up and then explode. Yeah. Because, you know, another thing that I, I, I discovered is that I don't think that this open or open doors order work. You need to know the person you're going to sure. work magic with. You need to sure. you need to be uh, to be willing to invite this person in your house. Like it's there has to be this sort of like very deep connection because Absolutely. you know when you when you work magic with someone, especially in a group setting, things will bubble up. Uh, you know tensions will rise. Um, over the last few years, uh, I ran my own group mostly online, and like I said, I, I had my own problems. Right, like I had to. Uh, it's it's not it's not it's not been any a smooth sailing because magic will create tension, right? Absolutely. It, Absolutely. And and so you know, like the, the if you add to that the fact that you're running an order that will allow in pretty much everyone because you believe that 
things will sort out themselves, it's going to be bad <laughs> and it's going to uh, be really yeah. bad. And also some orders, I, I, uh, uh, I'm not going to name any, and it's probably not the case of the OTO, but they also uh, the financial side is too much of a problem. They attract people because they okay. want membership to pay and, and not to, to help them develop. And that's also in some orders a problem, right? I mean, absolutely. I can tell you it's not the OTO case. No, uh, I don't OTO, think so. The OTO is very, it's very cheap, right? Yeah. Like the, yeah, yeah, the, first, yeah. the first initiation in London was like 60 pounds, which, you yeah. know, maybe it's not, it's not cheap for, for some people, but it's, we're not talking about No, thousands, but it's, not, right? not, it's nothing compares to others, exactly. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Time to take a musical break. And... Um, I think what is now the right thing to play is the music that Marco himself created, his main musical project between 2001 and 2014, so for 13 odd years, XP8, that was the name of that project. He then put it on hiatus, but he still releases the occasional single or EP, but uh, XP8 stopped touring a decade ago when... Marco realized that the music scene was on a dying spiral compared to the spotlights of the previous decade. Yeah, we sometimes have to change our focus uh, and that's necessary to develop in the world. They always produced music for goth raves, but this piece, the piece we're going to hear now is called The Night of Pan, is different. It's mellower than the normal output they did and... Uh, as Marco says, I wanted to try and convey in music the idea of approaching the abyss, which is also why you find the famous Oppenheimer sample in it. So something very special, very clearly on what we are talking about here today on the occult world. So The Night of Pan by XP8 with Marco in it. Then we return back to his interview, of course, and after the interview at the end of the show there will be a third piece as always again marco selected it for us and it's by a group called alcest and the piece is called sapphire alcest is a band that uh, has a unique blend of black metal and shoegaze they effectively founded the black gaze genre super popular band from france and this song that he chose, Marco Sapphire, is a remix by Synthwave Act Perturbator. And one interesting tidbit is that the singer of Halset often sings in the strange language that he claims to have received from the Fae. So you see, all the music we play here today and chosen by Marco Isconti has something to do with the occult somewhere. Right, so Night of Pan with XP8 to start with, then we return and speak to Marco Visconti and after the interview, the last piece will be Alcest's piece, Sapphire. And of course, afterwards, I will return to announce what happens next Sunday and what will be episode three of season 10. And now, Night of Pan. I knew the 
to come to your book 
Maybe one last question. Not it's not a question. It's a transition actually to to the book. Uh, um, you just mentioned in in your last statement that you have your own group now. So mm -hmm. are you you're not working as a solitary now um, in a group again? Um, how do you feel about solitary work for those people who are new to 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 Thelema or to magic occultism in general? What, what, what do you suggest to them? No, I, I think that everybody should start with solitary work in the sense mm -hmm. that you have to learn, first of all, if magic is for you, if you enjoy doing magic, Uh, if you and you, when especially when it comes to dilemma, you have to to try with yourself first to see. Okay, like do I do I enjoy the the philosophy? Okay, but do I enjoy the practice? Do I enjoy yeah. you know doing liberation every day? Do I enjoy um, doing maybe the Master of the Phoenix? Do I enjoy doing these things on my own? Then maybe the next step would be to find like-minded people. Mm -hmm. When I speak of my own group. Uh, it's something that really started online, right? During right before the pandemic started, I put together on, uh, on Patreon, uh, thinking nobody would show up, and then twelve people showed up, and then eventually those twelve people ended up becoming almost three hundred people. Uh, okay, it, it, it got very big, uh, and that, this was the height of the pandemic. You know, like when pretty much two years ago, when everybody was still locked in, or there yeah. were a lot of like problems doing anything else. So, you know, locked, you, locked in or locked out. Yeah. Locked in or locked out. <laughs> and so the idea is that, you know, in that very unique environment, I got a lot of people, hundreds of people, in fact, to uh, show up on Zoom pretty much up to three times a week, uh, mm -hmm. lectures, uh, classes, and then press on practice as well. You know, the kind of practice you can do online. Exactly. And but that is, that is all online, right? Your group it, is all online. or It was it's... all online from that point. You remember when I said before, like I really need to know persons like directly sure. to invite them to do something else. From that point, from that group, there was a select number of people. We're talking five people in fact only at the moment right that um were a, that i became close with and uh, we in fact we became a group of friends first and foremost mm -hmm. and that that also transitioned into uh in person uh right. magic magical operations all yeah. done under the ages of ecclesia Gnostica universalis and ecclesia Gnostica universalis is something that came together in the early 1990s, because in the early 1990s, that's when Bill Breeze make, made a very strange change to the, to the um, structure of the OTO, in the sense that he tied the uh, clergy uh, levels of Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica, you know, so priest, deacon, deacon priest, and, and bishop, to specific grade, degrees in the OTO. This was never... Uh, Crowley's vision. Crowley, there, 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 there exist um, letters from Crowley to, uh, to W.B. Crow that actually states very clearly that he always saw the OTO and the EGC as completely separate. Um, but in the 1990s, uh, Breeze realized that he needed some sort of apostolic succession in the Gnostic Church. And he also realized that a lot of the people in the Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica were going around and doing whatever they wanted, right? So he, he decided to 
to discipline the situation and structure out the situation by tying the OTO and the HSC together. It's so funny because like a lot of people in the OTO don't know this. They, a lot of people in the OTO don't know their own history. And yeah. if maybe they ignore, if they know it, they prefer to ignore it, right? Um, but a, a group of um, Gnostic bishops in the OTO including the only archbishop ever existing. I'm not naming names, but if people know know who is the only archbishop in, in the Cosinostica Toyga, you will know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, they decided to also create an alternative for those Thelemites who wanted uh, a, a Gnostic Thelemic experience without the, being tied to the OTO. And so yeah. Ecclesiastica Universalis came, came along, and in 2000, 18, when I resigned, Clive Harper, which if you open any group, any uh, book about Crowley or Telema, you will find him in the tanks list. Clive is, uh, is possibly one of the biggest collectors of Crowley. And he used to be a nine degree member of OTO, used to be the deputy grandmaster of uh, USGL, uh, UKGL, sorry. So mm-hmm. the Grand Lodge of the UK. Um, very good friend of mine, member, one of the, of those bishops of, uh, EGU, he passed the EGU on to me because it was kind of dormant at the time. Right. Um, and so that is the group that I mm-hmm. do my magical work in person, but it's, again, it's right. a, it's a super small group. We have a website and uh, maybe we can link it in the show notes. Yes, we have a website, see. but you know, in the website, it's very clearly stated, you know, membership, don't worry about it in the sense that right. uh, we, we, it's something like if you're interested, like you're more than uh, welcome to send me an email and maybe we'll meet in London uh, and then we'll get to know each other and maybe we'll get to know each other for over a year. And then maybe if we really, we, we, if we work well together, then we can talk about, you know, the next yeah. steps pretty much. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a complete right. different, it's a complete different approach. Different approach than, yes. That yeah, just yeah. join right now and you get these grades. And, but but know, it's good it's, to know. And yes, I will certainly link that on the website, of course. Yes. Yes. So let's move into the, into that book, the Alistair Crowley manual that you wrote, Hellemic Magic for Modern Times. So 120 years after the creation, basically 190, almost, almost yeah, 120 yeah. years after the creation of the original um, Crowley OTO, um, how how did you feel uh, or what has changed and what uh, made it so necessary for you to um, write a manual for those who are interested in discovering Thelema? Why not take Crowley's books and work with them? What's, what's, the, what's different between that and taking your book? So what the reason why I decided to, to write this book it's because I got convinced by those students that I was you know working with online during the lockdowns. Um, as I told you, um, at some point I had hundreds of them, right so mm-hmm. and people coming from all walks of life. And the one important uh, thing that that was common to most of them it was that almost none of them, cared about Crowley before learning, learning about magic online with me. In a sense, they always felt that Crowley was unapproachable. They always felt that Crowley was, that the most Telemites were assholes. They always felt that, you know, Telemic environments were very unfriendly to newbies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so 
the, lots of these people were like, well, I never thought that I would be interested in these practices, but you know, by virtue of this weird situation we are all living, uh, here we are. So why don't you write an introduction the same way you teach magic online to us? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I also realized that at that point, I did have already, you know, hundreds of pages written down because, you know, it was, it was really like weekly lessons and, you know, imagine like blogs, like that constant production of blogs, production of, um, practices, et cetera, et cetera. Me trying to explain, you know, why is it important to do rash? Why is Preparing it important for to... your classes probably as well? Precisely, yeah. precisely mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. So I realized that pretty much I had already most of the material, what I need to, needed to do, I needed, I need to edit it, right? I needed to, to put it into, into shape. And I want to be very clear here. I don't think that my book is a substitution for Crowley. In fact, I pretty much pretty, very, very clearly state at the end of the book that if you finish this book, well, it's time for you to read other things that are maybe a little bit more, go a little bit deeper. They focus a little bit, maybe a bit less on the, uh, on the doing and more on the why you're doing these things because my book is very practical. It's about, mm, you know, absolutely. you yeah. do this and then you do this and you do this. And I, I think I go into a decent amount of depth into explaining, for instance, why we do rash, which is, you know, the solar adorations. Why do we do, why do we want to learn to breathe and control breathing? Why do we want to do the pentagrams, the hexagram rituals, which, you it's know. It's very down to earth, you know, the book, I, feel it's very down. I think so. I mean, yes. I, I, I wrote it like that. Like I wanted sure, it yeah, to, be, sure, to be very down sure. to earth. But it is. And then, is. and then, you know, like even when we get into the, the telemics, the more, you know, more philosophical part of the book, I mean, mm -hmm. philosophical. It's too much Later on the, in the second yeah. part, yeah. Mm. I wanted to keep it simple because um, I do think that if, you, if, if people read this book and, I'll, you know, like the six months in, this book has sold over 1,000 copies, which is, I hear, it's a very good number for for esoteric uh, publications or for, yeah. for, 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 a new, for, you know, for a new author uh, with no history. And um, the point is that you know, what I wanted everybody reading this book to be clear, if you, write, if you love what you're uh, uh, reading here, Crowley is the next bit. Like you, you will have to push yourself and try to make sense of Crowley's you know, at time, very in, in, inscrutable Edwardian prose. But again, if you think about what Crowley tried to do himself uh, in the, and I like to say this story all the time, so I'm just going to repeat it again. Uh, in the introduction of uh, book three of Magic Liber ABA, so Magic Interior and Practice Proper, Crowley says very clearly, uh, you know, this book is for the pugilist, for the banker, for the housewife, for, for everybody. <laughs> Magic is for all. Yeah. And the thing is that, you know, he goes into this very great, uh, very good and very inspirational, um, you know, institute. And then pretty much the next uh, chapters are about, you know, the Eucharist and the blood of the saints or, or of Babylon yeah. the beautiful. And it gets very, very dilemmic. You know, it goes from zero to hero. And he, he's <laughs> not consistent in his, in his reasoning. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to create an alternative. I wanted to create a real first stepping stone for those who, uh, who know nothing of magic. Maybe, you know, my book is for those who never practice anything. It's for mm -hmm. those who maybe, you know, heard about Lester Crowley, and then saw a very, you know, a strikingly red 
book with Baphomet on the cover and say, oh, this is crazy. What is this? <laughs> Let's see if I can make sense of that. I think at some point in the book, you call that uh, explaining Crowley without Crowley, right? Uh, I, I think that's yeah. what you mean. I mean, it's, of course, that's a, a pointed way of saying it, but but I, th I think it makes it but there's also, you, you know, there's, there, there's a reason there as well. It's, I, I was kind of forced to do it uh, in the sense that I was, <laughs> my publisher, which is Watkins Publishing, um, they had a very bad experience with the other Crowley book that they published, which is uh, Dr. Stephen Skinner's edition of oh, okay. Liberty yeah. ABA, yeah. in the sense that they had a lot of problems with copyright, and mm -hmm. uh, and so they when you know when I approached them approached them for with my book, it was like yeah yeah we go this is great we want to do it, uh, but you gotta write it without ever quoting Crowley, and I was like. Okay, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> it's going to be problematic, but um, that that this is also why you you will find almost next to no. There are some, but next to no, there are no rituals. You know, like I I have to write. You know, if you want to read the rubric of this ritual, this is where you find it online. But uh, I cannot write it here. <laughs> Uh, but that this is an interesting point because as much as I do understand the reasoning and the legal reasoning of Watkins when, when what they're saying to you, of course, they, they want to protect themselves. They are a company who has to, to, who has to live from the money they make and not to spend it on lawyers. But, um, on the other hand, uh, copyright on magic and on magical sayings, magical theories or whatever you would say, or even on rituals, um, isn't that a bit contradictory in itself? It, it is absolutely contradictory, especially when we look at copyright. Copyright law, as you as you truly know, it's very complex. Yeah. It differs it differs from country to country. Um, a lot of Crowley, in fact, is in the public domain already. Not all of it, but a lot yeah. of it already is. Yeah. yeah. And but the reality there is that um, when it comes to um, publishing houses, publishers, they really don't want to deal with the litigiousness of the copyright holders, which is the OTL, of course, right? Of course. Uh, uh, I'm going to give you a little um, a little story there. Um, my book is going to come out in different languages now, Polish oh, okay. uh, and, and pretty much all the Balkan languages as well. And yeah. I've been trying to find a publisher in Italy as well. And one, I'm, maybe I will announce something in the coming months, but I, there was like me getting in touch with, with the publisher. Uh, and they're like, you know, this is interesting, but we're not going to touch Crowley because we don't want to have anything to do with the OTL in any way. So okay. that's, that's, that's something that, uh, I've heard from a lot of people everywhere. Like it's, it's weird because either, either you are on, um, the audios of Bill Bree's good, uh, good, good, good people book, or if not, you're, you become, it's, it becomes difficult to, to discuss dilemma outside of the ages of OTO, yeah. which uh, again, yeah. you know, it's, it's a problem on itself. If you ask uh, me, I, I'm not going to say names here today, but of course you have similar problems in Rosicrucian surroundings, in oh, yeah. surroundings. <laughs> so, uh, again, we don't say names, but as, as you said before, those who know, know who we're talking about. So it's, 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 it's the same problem all over the place. And in fact, this is 
against this to me this is against the spirit of initiation against the spirit of magic and occultism in general and therefore yeah, i agree with you it will not yeah. it will not survive okay because uh, i don't think uh, it will right like because, yeah. because you know there really there is that in they when it comes to the audio they're going to be able to milk the copyright for a very 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 little more right maybe yeah. a, maybe a few years um by the way um uh, i'm gonna going to be a little bit um, controversial here. It was was said to me, uh, I and I, I have to believe this is this to be the truth, that one of the reasons why in around 2012, uh, Bill Breeze and the OTO came with the famous Phil Kill controversy, and if people don't know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. in the Book of the Law, there's it, one of the main intimations as Telemais uh, that we're, it's given to us by the gods is that we should never change the style of the letter of any of the holy books of Telema, including mm-hmm. Liber Alba Legis, being you know, the book of the law, being the, the first and most important um, of our holy books. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2011, 2012, the, leader, the, the worldwide leader, uh, grandmaster of the OTO, Bill Breeze, uh, also known as Hymenaeus um, Beta, he did something. And what he did is that he um, changed the style of the letter in the sense that we have one part in the book, at some point it says, let it fill me. He changed it to let it kill me. And he went to, <laughs> he went to write an insanely long essay as to why. And I know it because I had to translate it in Italian. And okay. it's incredibly long, incredibly tedious, and it doesn't hold water. But it, then eventually somebody at the top who left told me that this was pretty much a way to try and extend the copyright on the book of the law. Okay. So so that he, so basically, you know, like you know, this is the book now it's it's not it's not written by Crowley anymore. It's written by I'm in Osbeta, and it was written by Eminence Beta in 2012. So the copyright is for years. Another 60 years, yes, sure, yeah, sure, you know? sure. Well, yeah, well, we have <laughs> those same problems with all kinds of theater plays, with music. Um, Absolutely. Uh, you, got, you, got, you, you name it, you name it. Um, in Europe, I'm, of course, we want here to talk about it in a way that those people who are interested get that book, and they, they should, because it's really a, um, an excellent training manual if i may say it for that for okay. for people who who i want don't want to use that word beginner because of course it is also for beginners and i think it's meant to be also but Absolutely. it's 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 more than that it's an it's an excellent also summary for people who are more experienced like i may say i am and, and it's it, it gives you new hints and that's i find it excellent um there are two or three phrases. I always pick out phrases when I present books like that with the author because the author can explain why he said it like that, hopefully. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> um, you say, and that's something that always uh, triggers me. I'm not a celibate myself, as you probably know. I'm, I'm in, in other parts of, uh, of, of her- hermeticism and, and, and um, ritual magic. Um, but... You say the HGA, the Holy Guardian Angel, is not an angel. You say that literally in the book, and of course you're you're absolutely right, right? Um, it's and 
On the other hand, you just mentioned the Ecclesia Gnostica, you mentioned the bishops, and, and all of that is also part of Thelema. Thelema. Um, I'm always triggered myself by those um, church names, mm -hmm. right? Um, and you can't even blame it on American uh, law, because, of course, in America, you can say once you're a church, you get tax re redemption. That's as for the reason that you call yourself a church. That was not the case when Crowley created it. So uh, um, why, I, I, why, why do I feel that contradiction? And what would you reply to a guy like me who has that contradiction feeling in him? Well, you know, it's interesting because I used to have the very same contradiction. I was born, as I told you, I was born in Rome in the shadow of the Vatican. I was baptized by Pope John Paul II. So, okay. you know, uh, I come from that and I escaped that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I really struggled with the, the, the Gnostic telemic side of things for a long time. It was only when I got consecrated as a bishop myself. And then when I started to really get into the, the neo-Gnostic movement that dates back to Jules Doinel, and then, you know, go to Papu and then go to Crowley, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, this is something that could be interesting because it's something that resonates on a much primal way with a lot of people. Well, people get religion much easier than they get magic, much easier than they get initiation, I feel. So it could be a way to promote these ideas, which was Crowley's, Crowley's intention, right? To use the, mm -hmm. the Ecclesiastica Catholica as a way of promoting the creed of, of the Thelemites to the wide, uh, even wider audience, right? Uh, the point is that also that knee-jerk reaction, it's something that should be analyzed, Right. If I if I have a an, uh, an injured reaction to something, if I uh, react very badly to something, well, I, I should actually maybe I don't say that, that maybe I should go there at all costs, but I should definitely try to make sense of why. And I did, and I realized that in fact, you know, it was for my uh, Catholic upbringing, and you know. I was very lucky, in fact, because my family wasn't particularly churchy, and uh, you know, I studied with the Jesuits. In, in elementary school and I loved doing, you know, being an altar boy because I had these massive bells that I have to dangle when the, when the communion was coming. It was really cool, right? I yeah, yeah. So I, and, I, and I never, ever had any sort of bad experiences with priests or anything like that. Mm. But still, I was, I didn't want that. I didn't want like theocracy. So I was like, okay, can I make, can I, can I make sense of this experience? Can I reappropriate this is it this religious experience, but make it telemic, make it the way it works for me. And that's why I think everybody, maybe even you, should give it a go. Because uh, the religious experience, I feel that the religious experience is the first step uh, towards interf interfacing with the other, interfacing with something bigger than ourselves. You don't have to go there. You can skip it if you want. You can go into magic, into initiation, into practice. And of course, it's deeper, it's more personal, it's more, maybe even more rewarding. But at the same time, you can also decide to, you know, go a step back and see what it's like to just be completely passive and just be receiving of this, uh, you know, some people would say the grace of God. Um, I don't know, we can call it the, the Thelemic Divine Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, think, I think it's an interesting experience. And this is why uh, I, and I'll tell you though, something else. Um, in a, in a Gnostic telemic environment, 
you really don't need to have complex degree systems. Uh, it's really about, you know, people that decide to be clergy or people decide not to be clergy. Even mm -hmm. the, the differences between, you know, priests and bishops are, are pretty much about uh, what level of gnosis you reach, what level of understanding of the mysteries you, you have re you reach, and how, mm -hmm. and how you are able to to shine these mysteries back to the audience, back to the congregations, right? Yeah. But it's really, it's, it's something that I guess that everybody will get there, right? And so it, it kind of kills the higher, that hierarchical tensions we were discussing before. It kind of kills this idea of, you know, I need to get to the next grade. I need to get to the next uh, rung of the ladder. There's only three ladders, right. really, three, three, three rungs of the ladders. And if you, if you're serious about pursuing the mysteries, you, you get there. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. sure, sure. See what I mean? No, I, I like asking you those questions because they, they, you are so firm in you know you know what you're talking about. So it's it's interesting to 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 listen to you because it's very very clear what you're saying, and also that comes through in the book. I I, I like the book very much because it is so. Uh, yeah, it is very clear. You know, it doesn't try to hide things, but on the contrary, to to lift the veil. Uh, I try. So yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you were saying. Um, our in, in the book, well, you're you're citing, I believe, Crowley there, but um, still, it's it's a term that is not often on people's mind when they speak about Salima. Our destination is Heliopolis, right? Mm -hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, Heliopolis is, of course, uh, the city of the sun, and the, this was the cradle of initiation in uh, in ancient Egypt, right? It was it was the, a city of of thoth, actually. Exactly, right. it was yeah, it yeah. was like the place where you would travel to to become initiated. Now, without saying, without you know, without sharing any secrets uh, and without breaking any oaths. Uh, even if, you know, I've been called an oathbreaker many times already. Um, let's say that the term Heliopolis has a very, very, very important meaning for Thelemites. Some of it is in the open. Like if you if you read the wider Thelemic corpus, you will find the term Heliopolis. And remember that the Egyptian name of Heliopolis is On, on yes. o -O -N, or Ain Nun. And Ain Nun are, you know, if you look at the, 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 the Tree of Life, uh, and Ain and Nun are the two paths that go to Tiferet. So they go to the sun, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, Ain and Nun also number 120, which is the, the, the number of the years between before the opening of the pastas of Christian Rosencrantz. That's a lot there, right? There's a lot to mm -hmm. think about. Mm -hmm. And let me say that if you are an OTO member, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of uh, there's a lot of Heliopolis in it. So yeah. I I think it was it's an important name. It's a name that that holds a lot of power. It's a name that harkens back to the the true cradle of initiation back in Egypt. And so I really wanted to bring that name back on onto the map. And you know, even in a book for absolute beginners, um, you know, introduce it right away because it's. I do believe that. Um, names have inherent power, and I do believe in. The, and something else that I speak in the book: the, the idea that you know, magic is about creating myth. It's about using the language of myth, creating mythopoeia, and you know, starting to have this idea of reaching somewhere. You know, down the line, you're going towards the city of the sun, and that's Heliopolis, and that's where the sun is, right? It's different. You're going towards different. It's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful image. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, well, thank you, thank you for that. Yes, absolutely. 
You, I find it very funny, really. Um, uh, Crowley's, what I think, I don't know if it was his last book, but one of his later books, at least, is called Magic Without Tears. Mm-hmm. And you say in a little aparte in the book that you initially wanted to call this book Magic After Tears. Salem After Tears. Uh, uh, Salem After Tears. Sorry, sorry. Salem After Tears. Yes. Um, meaning, if I get you right, that it needs a lot of. Uh, investment, I mean, not money investment, but personal investment, engagement, um, time, uh, energy, etc., to get where you want people to get with your book, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so what are those tears in your experience? I mean, not the ones that you had to experience, but the ones that uh, the newcomer in those first months and years will have to experience how would you describe them how would you encourage people to go for those tears well the thing is that um i want people to understand that any initiatory path it's a path of absolute change and Mm. change comes through uh pain most of the time right in the sense that it it doesn't have to be pain in the sense that yeah you don't have to go through hell but you are asking yourself to pretty much, you know, uh, enclose yourself in a cocoon, being dissolved, and then come mm-hmm. back as a butterfly. And well, that I'll, those I'll are those solve, solve it, solve it, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you know, those are the those are the tears we're talking about. Right. I also, you know, the the, the book one originally was meant to be called Thelem After Tears because I also think that especially if you're interested in a thalamic uh, gnosis, so in mm. initiation, both the nature of this initiation itself lends to very deep change, very emotional changes. Telema is force and fire. Okay. And so, you know, you bring, it's the inn of Horus, it's the inn of the, of a God of war and vengeance. Uh, it, it's, it's not, it's not the lamp anymore. It's different, right? So yeah. if you want, if you want this, you have to know that you're, you're going on the warpath with yourself, pretty mm-hmm. much. But mm-hmm. also, unfortunately, the counterpoint of that, well, the counterpoint, the, the, uh, in addition to that, it's also that the wider telemic milieu is not very friendly. Uh, it's, it's full of uh, maladjusted individuals, uh, and uh, you, you, you meet them. <laughs> There's no way around it. You'll end up meeting them, and uh, there will be tears. So sure. the good news is that all these tears are exactly what you need in order to be reborn as a, as a, as a butterfly. Right? I, I was going to say, I think those tears by those, those, this pain you have to go through, and not only through the ritual and the hard work, but by those meetings you just meant, they are part of the school, aren't they? Absolutely. It's mm. part of initiation. Initiation, it's not easy. Initiation, yeah. it's, it's not a stroll in the park. Initiation yeah. is, you know, going on the hero's journey, knowing that you might not come back from it. And, yes. and I, you know, I really wanted, um, I wanted my, you know, my students online, but people to read my book to try and get this. Because, you know, we live in, in, the, in, in, a, in a moment of history where magic, you know, it went through a major revival in recent years. Maybe it's kind of dying now, down now, but these things are cyclical, right? They always come back. But we had one major revival, and this major revival became very 
very well marketed in the sense that, you know, it became about life coaches and getting the best of your life and being a girl boss and being, you know, uh, having, being in control with your five, five uh, D evolutions, everything very positive. Unfortunately, that's marketing. <laughs> that's, that's, that the people are trying to sell something to you, and they're trying to sell you know the idea that the, you can become the best version of yourself without much effort. Mm. That's not it. Magic is hard. It's super rewarding, but it's very hard, and it requires a lot of you. Um, because, because it is hard, is it? I don't like the word exclusive, but is it, um, well, I, I don't find a better word. Maybe you have a better one. Is it, uh, I don't want to use elitist either, but is it, is the requirement for magic so high that it automatically will not appeal to a large group? Let's put it that way. I have no doubts about it. Um, and I've seen it in recent years again. Yeah. Like I said, we, we went through this major revival, mostly fueled by people being locked into their houses and having to get entertained and try to find things. And um, of all those, remember when I mentioned that at the height of the pandemic, I had 300 people on my online, online courses. Now I have 60. <laughs> yeah. Those are the ones who survived, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, like, you know, every time I announce something, uh, a new course, you get 30 new signups, which is great, honestly. I mean, this became my full-time job, right? So I'm grateful. This is great. But eventually, you know, people realize that it's not for everybody. Um, I like to say that magic is the birthright of humanity, and I believe it in the sense that, yeah. you know, yeah, every man and every woman is a star. Everybody yeah. has the potential for this. The potential, it, exactly. It, like, it doesn't matter where you're born, doesn't matter your race, your gender, nothing. Everybody has the potential to become, you know, to reach Heliopolis, to to unite with the Holy Guardian Angel and go further, you know, maybe cross the abyss, all these lofty ideas. But the reality there is that very few people go all the way because it's hard. Um, yeah. I also I also personally think that we get multiple chances of this in the sense that the, the soul reincarnates and then maybe eventually... You know, if you abstract ourselves outside the circles of space and time, maybe everybody is already there in the sense yeah. that yeah, everybody, yeah. you know, the pleroma is back into one. Back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we, are, we have reconciled it. <laughs> but I mean, you're a musician, I'm a musician, and it's, but we both know it doesn't, it suffice to be musical, to have a talent. It's hard That's work. It. And just the same here, right? Absolutely. Um, on the other hand, I must say, and that's a, for me a huge quality of this, your book, um, when you read Crowley, let's take him, right? Uh, I could also name others. Um, but uh, as we talk about him, let's take him as an example. You sometimes read, he, I think he makes it particularly complicated to, to, to make it more difficult to approach. And you prove with your book that it can be the contrary. It doesn't make the work easier, but it maybe makes the approach to the work easier. And maybe that's the, the, that's the most important thing to do, right? You know, I think so. Um, I, we also have to say that, you know, for the time, Crowley's uh, style was very modern, was much easier than everything that came before him, right? It's just that we're people, yeah. 120 years later, people are trying to uh, push Crowley's uh, writings as the, the standard 
but it's 120 years later. It's almost like we're trying to, we're trying to go, universities don't do that, right? That's University, true. That's true. you know, universities yeah. update their curriculum, uh, yeah. curricula, sorry. Um, yeah. You know, teachers change way they teach. And, but when it comes to magic, for some reason, we, we have to be traditional because if it's not traditional, it's not good enough. Uh, I, yeah, think, yeah. I think I think that's not true, you know. But I find it very funny when Crowley says he is the reincarnation of Eliphas Levy. You know, I find that a very, very, a very strange statement of him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, I, I I really believe that he said that because you know Levy provocation, name, but also also because he needed to not write a thesis of Adeptus Exemptus. So he just said, you know, my dogma okay. ritual of Lord Mochi yeah, is okay. my thesis. Okay. Good, <laughs> good explanation. Good explanation. Well, we're coming towards the end. Uh, I have a, a, a question. Well, not a question. In, I want to incite you to do that. You say at some point in the book, you're visiting the astral plane. You're talking about that. And that's another book you say, basically. That's a, that would be, a, well, why not doing another book about visiting the astral planes? Well, because I'm doing another book right now. <laughs> I, I am writing something new. And basically, uh, what I'm writing right now is I would like to do, um, you know, the next step, right? Like, mm -hmm. so if my, if this first book was introduce, introducing, you know, the, the basics of magic, as we know it in Telema, the basic rituals, um, and introducing a little bit of the philosophy of Telema, in this second book, it is about, you know, going towards Heliopolis for real. And so, uh, what I'm writing is about a series of practices that can, um, give people some insight in what it means to, um, you know, aspire to the Holy Guardian Angel, the nature of the Holy Guardian Angel, how it's different, you know, from what we know in the Abramelian operation and then what Crowley speaks because Crowley says many things on the Holy Guardian Angel and from time to time. They are in contradiction with each other. And Absolutely. then if you, if you have the experience, you realize that. Maybe yes, you know, the, 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 the natal guardian angel of the Bermelian operation, it's something which is similar to the experience of maybe the near Pikalpa Samadhi that you join in, uh, um, in, uh, in the Telemic experience, but they're not kind of the same. And a lot of people are very confused about that. So I'm trying, you know, this is, this is what I'm writing about. Yeah. Um, there's going to be a, a little bit of astral plane as well, because... Um, Good. What I'm also going to incorporate is my Thought Thera Magic course. Uh, Thought Thera Magic is something that it's basically my introduction to the Thought Thera and the mm -hmm. philosophy of, of mm -hmm. the Thought Thera. How the Thought Thera is a pictorial representation of Dilemma and how pretty much all the secrets of Dilemma, including all the secrets of BOTL, are in the, in the cards if you know where to look for them. Uh, right. over, the last, over the last six months, I ran this course for 40, 40 something people. And for every week we went into path working into the cards, right? Into the major arcana. And, you know, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of material came out of that, uh, sure. you know, 22 path workings written completely from zero. Uh, and there's a lot of like explanations of, you know, the scope, because, you know, the way I would do it is that I would you know, so write the, write the path working, write the script, then get the people online, run the path working with them, have a discussion afterwards and then, um, you know, present them the script with all the, uh, explanations for the script. So, okay, what is the symbol? What, why the Pelican or why the, uh, why the double Eagle, et cetera, et cetera, you know, with references with book of lies, reference with magic without the magic without tears, references through all the holy books is massive. 
So that's pretty much something that is pretty much training for me to then attempt the, the knowledge and conversation. You have to have that grammar inside right. of you if you right. want to, to, to try and, and, and create your own ritual. Because again, you can do the grammar in operation and have an experience that it's very close to the, the, the union with the Holy Guardian Angel. You can try to dissect Liber Samek and make, come up, you try to understand what are the moving parts of Liber Samek. But the reality is also that you really, really, in order to do that, I would say you really, really need the, uh, the grammar that it's encoded in the Book of Thought. So, you know, mm -hmm. all these things are possibly coalescing into the next book, which is great. Uh, when let me can tell we you, expect it? Um, maybe 2025. I'm very slow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very, I, and the thing is that, you know, I am in, um, in a few months. I'm going around another course called the, the, the Holy Guardian Angel Experience, where I'm also going to try uh, if these teachings work, right? Because, you know, that I always found out that um, I know I can deliver very good historic classes. I'm, I think I'm very good, you know, putting together slides and everything. In general, my presentations are very clear. But I also want to try experiments, you know, in the sense like, mm -hmm. okay, um, I cannot teach you how the, the ritual to, to invoke your Holy Angel because you have to decode it for you. But can I give you, again, path workings that give you a glimpse of the experience? Can I give you a series of maybe working with, with an Oaken system that can uh, kickstart something similar to that? So yeah. that's, that's coming up next. And then I will go full into uh, pretty much like finishing the book. Uh, I, I'm already, I already have around 200 pages. Uh, this will be, I guess, be bigger. A bigger <laughs> one. Great. Yeah. Great. Well, because you were talking about Crowley and talking about the Holy Guardian Angel, about being not consistent in his explanations. Um, well, the, the true hermeticist, uh, the, the deep hermeticist, works a lot on what we call the, net, the neutralization of the binary. Mm -hmm. So it's always that's dialectical, of course. So those contradictions have always a new, a new outcome in the middle, and that's what we have Absolutely. to look for and find for. And maybe that's why he did those contradictory uh, um, uh, um, sayings. Also, um, well, you're. We are there, Tetelestai. That's the Tetelestai. last <laughs> chapter. It is done, it means. And um, if you guys, you listeners here, have only time to go into a bookstore and look through this book uh, by Marco Visconti, go to chapter seven and have a quick look at those question and answer type things he does there. And I believe after five minutes of uh, looking through that, you're going to go to the counter and buy that book because um, um, he, there he gives all the answers you need to, why to buy the book and, and, and work it through. Uh, Marco, thank you for being with us here today. It was a pleasure to have you. And you promise you come back in two years when you have that new book ready. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's been a blast. I loved it. And yeah, you, I, you can trust I'll be back as soon as the, the next one is out. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Bye thank for you. Bye-bye.
Sapphire by Alcest. I hope you heard this strange language received from the Fae, as the singer of Alcest claims. Right. Well, thanks, Marco, for a wonderful talk. You said it was a blast. Yes, I think it was. It really was nice to speak and um, very interesting and deep. And, well, everything you guys like when you come here to the Source Hermes podcast. And thanks for coming also this week. It's great to have you every week back here and speaking about every week. Well, next week is also every week. So next week is episode three of season 10. And it'll be a bit a special type of episode. We will have the regular interview, of course. But in the interval, the interval will be a bit longer. The middle of the interview, the break will be a bit longer because there not only I will play a piece of music, but also interview a musician, a singer. I won't tell you more. I will tell you that the interview partner, the main interview will be with Thomas Meyer. He is German, as you will hear by his nice accent, and he has also published a book in, by in in traditions. One of his German books had been translated. It's about elementals and elemental beings, um, and it's very much centered and based around anthroposophy about Rudolf Steiner and his teachings, because that's where um, Thomas Meyer originates from in his occult work. So we will speak about both, about that book, but also a lot. And for the first time here, actually, we do something I have wanted to do for quite some time um, to speak about Rudolf Steiner, his work, his background. Um, we're not going to do a full show on Anthroposophy, but it will be really an important part of the interview. And I hope you guys will enjoy that. And well, that break interview with the musician has to do with what I said in the intro to this show here today and already last time. Uh, the first step towards what music, what sound can mean to the occultist, what does it change in us, which senses does it work with, etc. So that young musician I will go talk about, we will speak about her music, which will be the music we play next time, but also about why she does it, how she does it. Well, hang on, come back next week and you will get the whole picture. Prepare for a show that might be 10 minutes longer than usual. Right, so for this week, thanks for listening. Um, see you all again next week. And for this week, have a good week. Be careful. It's a strange world we're all living in. But take care. Stay tuned, hear you soon.